Hello and welcome to this WealthTrack podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. Our topic today is municipal bonds. The traditionally safe and reliable tax-exempt bond market suffered historical declines with the rest of the bond market in 2022. How have they fared with this year's rate increases? And why do they deserve investors' attention now? Our guests are the co-leads of Baird's Municipal Sector and senior portfolio managers of Baird's award-winning suite of municipal bond funds. Dwayne McAllister and Lyle Fitterer, welcome to WealthTrack. Consuela, first of all, thanks for having us. And uh, we're always uh, interested in talking about bonds. And it's a much better year to be talking about bonds than it was in 2022. While we still have a long ways to go in terms of recovery, uh, I would say the, the good news for bond investors who are in the market right now, we are seeing positive returns this year. Now, it varies where you are on the curve. You might be up just slightly or as much as you know, 3 to 4%, but nonetheless, we're seeing positive returns this year. And, and I think the, maybe the bigger point is that for investors who uh, perhaps have been on the sidelines or have been the very short end of the curve, you know, now is, at least in our view, a very appealing time to start looking again at bonds in a, in a different way, given the the rise in yields we've seen in the last two years. So you more. anticipated my next question, Dwayne and, and Lyle, if you want to take this one, is why muni bonds now? And I'm looking at the Fed's pausing its rate increases for now, but it is still very determined uh, to fight inflation. And so what's the rationale to invest in the municipal bond market now? There are a couple of things, I guess, that we would point to. Even if they're not going to raise rates, they probably are going to stay higher for longer which as a fixed income investor, we love to hear that, right? Collecting more income for a longer period of time isn't necessarily a bad thing. So the reason why we like bonds right now is one, if you look back at what your income levels are on a high quality municipal bond right now, you can get four to 5% depending upon what quality you're looking at. And those are generally A or better type credits. If you adjust that, if you're a high income taxpayer, and you adjust that for taxes, you're talking somewhere between six and three quarters and maybe even nine or 10% if you're in a high tax state like California or New York, New Jersey, et cetera. So if you look at those returns, if you look at the historical volatility of the market, you can get equity-like returns with fixed income type volatility or about a quarter of the volatility that you would get in the, in the stock market. The second thing we would say is that if you look back to a year ago when rates were kind of where they are today, and if you fast forward and say, what's been your total return on some of these longer term products in the marketplace? And if I look at it and I look at some of the funds that we manage that have longer durations, their total returns are anywhere from five to 6%, uh, which compares very favorably to sitting in cash. Mm -hmm. So again, while the market uh, rates have gone back up, Again, we would say that's an opportunity to lock in these rates for a longer period of time. The risk that you take by not doing that right now is that uh, if rates do start to come back down, we go into a recession, you had an opportunity to lock in some of these rates for a longer period of time. And by sitting in cash or short-term investments, uh, you basically haven't done that. And when rates go back down, you're going to be reinvesting at lower rates. And what's the Baird case right now? What's the assumption that Baird is working on? I would say that our view at Baird is that we're taking Jay Powell and the Fed at their word, first of all, that, you know, what their goal, and it really is all about inflation. Right. You know, we, we've seen inflation come down, cut in half or more, depending on, on which index you want to look at. 
but we're not there yet. We still have more to go. They continue to reiterate that, and that is the key. And I think they're just going to stay at this, uh, whether it means staying at 5.5% or perhaps slightly higher, until they, I think to put it in Jay Powell's words, a high level of confidence that they're on their way to two. And now there's some skepticism as to whether he means two or two and a half, but he's been very clear about you know the, the directional trend here. I think when you're looking at the Fed policy that very likely we're near the end of that, but it just takes time. Uh, we had some really unusual events leading into this, of course, with the uh, COVID pandemic, followed by the massive fiscal stimulus, and then really strong uh, tax revenue recovery. And consumers were flush mm-hmm. and were, were eroding, if you will, or spending down some of that excess savings, but we're at least heading in the in the right direction. And you're seeing I'd say early signs of slowing. You could look to housing and uh, some of the manufacturing areas. So I think the Fed is comfortable that we're on the right path, but it just takes a bit more time. So could rates, uh, market rates go higher from here? Sure. There's, there's plenty of things that could still keep rates elevated or even move up a bit from here. But I think you know, the broader point is that the income levels now being produced, uh, particularly you know, on a tax-adjusted right. basis, are really, really appealing. The most appealing we've had really since before the great financial crisis of 2008. If you add, uh, you know, where income levels are today, 4 to 5% on a tax-exempt bond, 6% plus or minus on a corporate uh, security, and you look at some sort of scenario analysis, you know, rates could go up another 100 basis points from here. If you look at, say, an intermediate five-type duration bond, and you're going to still produce a positive total return. So that income component is so much more influential today relative to where it was, you know, two years ago when you effectively weren't getting any income. So, so Lal, you're, you're saying basically so that the income, that there's a cushion against the kind of volatility that was so devastating to bond investors in 2022 that you didn't have before. So that would will kind of soften the, the risk if, if rates, in fact, go up another full percentage point, which very few people are saying that they're going to. But that, so is that the greatest risk out there for investing in municipal bonds as opposed to short-term bonds to extend your maturity and extend your interest rate sensitivity? Yeah, I guess the greatest risk, right, is always that your price of your bond goes down or the price of your mutual fund. So you're right, as you get further out the curve and you add more duration, obviously you'll have more negative price performance on that security. But you're exactly right that that additional income that you're getting will cushion that. And from a total return perspective, that income plus the potential that if rates go up 100 basis points, you lose some price Mm -hmm. uh, of your bonds, that total return should still be in positive territory, which I think is comforting. When we're talking about extending the duration, and again, for lay people out there is that the duration is is a measure of the bond's interest rate sensitivity and the longer the maturity, the more sensitivity you have. So when you're talking about investing, looking at something like the municipal bond fund, the core municipal bond fund, is there kind of an optimum extension that we should consider as investors? For the two funds you mentioned, the Baird Core Intermediate Fund, it's uh, just under a five-year duration. Mm -hmm. And for the the municipal bond fund, it's uh, just over six-year six okay. duration. And I think for many investors, that type of duration risk would probably be uh, appropriate. 
And the, the other thing I was going to comment on, what we're really talking about here is bond math. I mean, the, the diff, one of the differences between, say, the equity market and the bond market is, you know, in the equity market, you have to make some assumptions about uh, company earnings and PE valuations, and those things are obviously up for debate uh, all the time. In the bond market, uh, if you tell me what your starting yield level is or what your income level is at the time you invest, we can tell you with a with a high degree of probability looking out over the next five, six years or so that there's a very good chance that your total return, which is the income and price fluctuation, is going to be very similar to what your entry point is. So if you're buying into a taxable security today at, at 6%, you know, there's a good chance that your return over the next five, six years or so will be in that mm-hmm. range. And on a tax-adjusted basis, I guess that's where the, in our view, the really compelling story is right now is your starting tax-adjusted yield is, you know, seven, seven and a half, eight percent. Those are the kind of anticipated total return numbers that you you might expect over the And, and those are years. levels we haven't seen since when, 2007? Right. Long time. Yeah. A long time. You have to go back, you know, 15 plus years, uh, really uh, pre-great uh, financial crisis when, quote unquote, we're in a more normal environment. Uh, before the central banks obviously had to go to you know such extraordinary measures as, as we've seen over the last uh, decade and right. a half. Let me ask you about the fundamentals, the, the health of municipal finance, because there's tremendous concern in the bond markets, um, obviously, about the historic level of indebtedness at the federal level. So what is the state of municipal finances? They actually look pretty good right now. They, the state and local governments benefited just like the consumer did from all the stimulus that right. uh, came from the federal government. So the federal government's in debt, but what it's prevented is a lot of these state and local governments having to issue additional debt. The amount of debt outstanding in the muni market really hasn't changed for the last 15 to 20 years. So debt levels aren't going up. At the same time, taxes have actually gone up pretty dramatically. And so if you look at where these municipalities are positioned today relative to where they were pre the Great Recession, their uh, reserve levels are at record levels. Their debt levels really haven't changed. Uh, tax receipts are higher. The question is, what's going to happen on a go-forward basis? Now, obviously, things are going to slow down, and we're already starting to see tax revenues slow down to a certain degree. But we would say that they're very well prepared for a slowdown. Okay, because I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I'm in Connecticut, and one of the headlines recently was that the stimulus money for instance, that went to the schools is basically they're running out. And it's like just about everyone else, when they get new funds, they expand their budget to you know, meet those, those new revenues coming in. But now those revenues are no longer going to be here. And so there's going to be some strains. Is, is that a factor uh, in, in municipalities as well at the state and local level that, that you all are tracking with any concern? I would say our concern level is uh, less now than it has been at other points in time. You know, it, it, the, the greatest concern is always in the depths of a, of a recession okay. uh, when you're seeing tax revenues decline. And at the same time, the demand for services rises, uh, whether it's additional welfare needs uh, at the state and local level. The, the one huge difference, though, that I think is, is underappreciated about the municipal market is you mentioned the word budget. School districts, cities, counties, states, they actually have a budget and they have a sort of checks and balances. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't fudging and there aren't games that get played, that that happens at at all levels of government. 
but uh, only for a period of time. Eventually, there's a there's a day of reckoning, let's say, where uh, you have to bring the the revenues and expenses in line, and that means either at the local level, maybe property taxes go up, or there's a sales tax increase, or perhaps income tax increase, uh, or spending goes down. But there's there's a discipline there, and I think that's the biggest reason. You know, Lyle had talked about the level of outstanding debt has been very stable at about $4 trillion for the last 15 years. You, you certainly can't say that about the no. federal government. Uh, and I think that's the concern you know, the market is, is expressing today with the rising long-term yields is just how much borrowing will, will be done at the federal level and who's going to buy it. We are talking about the opportunities in the municipal bond market with Dwayne McAllister and Lyle Fitterer co-leads of the municipal sector at Baird. A few years ago, there were real hot spots of concern, Puerto Rico and Illinois, and specifically Chicago. Are there any particular crisis areas now that uh, that investors should avoid? Well, I think you kind of hit it on the head, that article that you talked about, and I didn't read that particular article, but I think those similar articles are occurring mm-hmm. around the country that, what did these municipalities do with right. this money? Did they effectively use it to plug a budget deficit uh, that they had? Did they actually increase their budget because they got this additional money? And different school districts, different municipalities did different things. So I think you have to look at which were the ones that were disciplined and used it just to truly plug a budget deficit and didn't necessarily expand their budget because they had additional dollars and now they're going to have a shortfall. Uh, And which ones did the opposite? The same kind of holds true, I think, in terms of where are we going to be when we come out the other side of this. And what we've been telling people is that I think you only need to look at who were the violators pre the pandemic and, you Mm -hmm. know, have they changed their habits uh, during the pandemic? And we would argue that in many cases they haven't. So a state like Illinois that had one of the worst pension funding statuses coming into it, it's improved, don't get me wrong. Uh, And they've made contributions, which is positive. And they've actually been upgraded several times because of that by the rating agencies. But at the same time, Fitch warned uh, the state of Illinois that they were going to need to address this. And even though they upgraded the credit, it was something that they were going to be following. So you can look back at the places uh, that you mentioned, state of Illinois, the state of New Jersey that have poorly funded pensions. You can look at some of these other perpetual violators that uh, historically, while they were supposed to balance their budget, they uh, perpetually ran budget deficits. So that's what we're focusing on right now. And we're also saying, you know, you don't need to reach uh, down the credit spectrum to get good levels of income in the marketplace. So you can avoid those credits and still produce a pretty good portfolio with pretty high tax-adjusted right. returns. Let me just pick up on that because I, I looked at the portfolio of the Baird Core Intermediate Municipal Bond Fund, and which you know, highly rated silver uh, Morningstar analyst rating. Uh, in looking about where the, the fund was invested, and this was at the, the end of the third quarter, 11% of, of it was invested in Illinois bonds. Talk to me about what you just told me versus where you're investing. I mean, Texas, it looks like, is the, the largest allocation of, of states is, is where you're in, invested kind of across the board. But, but the Illinois, that surprised me in the uh, core yeah. intermediate municipal bond yeah. fund. Yeah, the, the, uh, we could talk actually about uh, both of those states yeah. because there's there's a story with okay. each. I mean, I'll, I'll start with Texas, and and this is something that you know we all I think recognize about Texas is there's a, a, an awful lot of growth and in migration coming 
uh, from other states. And so if, if anyone's traveled to Texas uh, in the last year or two, you can see the development that's occurring and the growth. So it's a really strong state from a fundamental credit perspective, rapid growth, so a lot of borrowing needs. We like the fact that there's strong fundamental support there and the ongoing need to borrow. All of the debt that's issued in the state of Texas has to go through the state attorney general, so it's all approved at at least the the state level. So there's, again, sort of a checks and balances. There's no state income tax in Texas, so those bonds tend to trade a little bit cheaper than some other states with high income taxes. So that that's just one reason we, we like Texas and it's one of our highest state allocations. Illinois, to Lyle's point, there are concerns about the, the state credit. And because of that, we would say that virtually every credit uh, in the state trades a little mm-hmm. cheaper. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a state yield penalty, but that works to the favor of the, of the bond investor because you can buy a really high quality, let's say, local school district, O'Hare Airport or Illinois Tollway Authority, where you know, you're getting the additional yield, but you have a really strong either local property tax base in the case of the school district or revenue support in case of some of these other uh, right. revenue credits. So it's the extra yield that we receive in, in Illinois credits, uh, but yet avoiding the state uh, long-term concern that we So in fairness, right, when I just look at kind of where the allocation is from a state point of view, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a general obligation bond. And in fact, the most emphasis seems to be on, on, on revenue bonds. So that's what you're talking about in Illinois. They might be revenue bonds based in Illinois, but they're not an Illinois state credit. Why revenue bonds versus the kind of traditional safer, supposedly, general obligation bonds. You can go back to the bankruptcy filing by Detroit, and I think you know the world kind of got turned upside down a little bit in terms of, historically, as you said, GOs or general obligation bonds were always thought of as the best place and the safest place because they had what was called unlimited taxing mm-hmm. authority. Right. What we found out in these bankruptcies is they really don't have unlimited taxing authority. You can only squeeze so much blood out of a turnip, right? And that if the economy rolls over, if you don't have a tax base, you're limited in terms of what those tax revenues could be. So on the flip side, it's been proven in bankruptcy courts that these revenue bonds, those revenues are actually pledged to bondholders. So even if you go through a bankruptcy, those revenues will continue to go towards bondholders. You saw that with um, Detroit Water and Sewer, which is now Great Lakes uh, Water Authority, and that that credit actually survived. Bondholders got paid in full, whereas the GO obligations or the general obligations of the city of Detroit received a reduced amount of recovery. So getting back to what you were talking about, a revenue bond has a more predictable cash flow. You're actually backed by the water and sewer payments of that water and sewer authority. It's pretty predictable. Mm -hmm. And If you're wrong and something happens to the state credit or that local credit and you go through a bankruptcy, which is very, very unlikely, but if that does happen, that if you actually act to go to a court of law, we think those bonds would actually recover and would be um, paid in full in a, even eventually if you had something as dramatic as a bankruptcy. So it's a long explanation, but it gets into kind of the legal ramifications of maybe why you'd want to buy a revenue bond versus a general obligation. And in many cases, you also don't have that pension obligation that the state or the local governments are subjected to. 
I've been intrigued for the, I'm sure you have been dismayed over the last decade plus is that we had this Tina theme, there is no alternative to stocks. But I think, Lyle, you told me the other day that, that there's a new one, which is Rob, which is regular old bonds. So is th- this seems like a, just a seismic shift in where investor emphasis should be from no alternative to stocks to regular old bonds. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? We're debating here who came up with uh, the Rob ac- acronym, <laughs> but we do think it's uh it is indicative of the environment we're in. It used to be when rates, just a couple of years ago, when rates were close to zero, you were looking at how can I generate income in right. my portfolio? So some people turn towards high yield, which arguably wasn't even high yield at that point. Others looked at real estate as an alternative asset class. Some people looked at private credit. So really giving up liquidity in your portfolio to maintain those income levels and find an alternative for fixed income that they thought would perform better from a long-term perspective. You don't need to do that anymore. You can buy regular old bonds. Rob, Rob's your best friend now. You know, you can buy a double A rated bond, as we said earlier, at four to 5% tax exempt on a tax adjusted basis that gets you up to that, you know, seven to 8% or even higher in the corporate market. You can buy A rated corporate bonds at 6% or better. So again, no need to go outside the asset class. Let's return to our core fundamentals and just look at what can I get in a traditional bond investment. And on the other side, I can look at traditional stocks if, I, if that's what I want from a balanced portfolio. But we do think that more people are going to start paying more attention to just those regular old bonds when they're structuring their portfolios. Right. And, and Dwayne, as, as far as liquidity in the markets, is, what is the liquidity situation uh, in the municipal bond market, can that be a source of liquidity for for individuals? Liquidity is something we we pay attention to virtually every day, particularly when, when we're running open-end mutual funds. I mean, our number one job, while we want to perform well against both our benchmark and our peer group, is when the investor has the need for right. money, uh, that we have to be able to provide that and do it at the least possible impact to the price of the fund. And so we have throughout our, our funds and our strategies, what we would call layers of mm-hmm. liquidity, things that we know that at any given moment, we would look to this and then that uh, for that. But I, I would say the general environment uh, from a liquidity perspective in the missile market right now is pretty good. There are times when the market can become very illiquid. I'm just thinking back to March and April of 2020 at the start of the pandemic, when it was very difficult to get any kind of bid on a bond because we just there was just too much macro uncertainty. While there's still uncertainty economically, uh, th- there seems to be plenty of money. I mean, we see it on a, a new issue that's priced. If a new um, municipality is bringing debt to market, if it's priced at all appropriately, uh, at least viewed by the market, it will be many, many times oversubscribed. And if you put higher quality bonds out for bid to raise funds to meet any redemptions or needs you might have. There's a significant number of bids on those bonds. So uh, liquidity is pretty good right now, I would say. And I think it's a function of growing demand. Uh, I think as more people come to recognize the value of the proposition that we're talking about and still a very stable, outstanding supply. So let go back to Econ 101, supply demand. It's, it's uh, favorable. And I think likely to remain favorable into 2024. So we always ask at the end of every Wealth Track interview if there's one investment that 
everyone should own in a long-term diversified portfolio, what would that be? I would say, you know, just core intermediate municipal portfolio mm -hmm. is really a, a good starting point. And the reason we, I would emphasize intermediate, typically you've got this upwardly sloping yield curve. So you do pick up yield to move out into that five to 15 year part of the curve. And so that's rewarding. And you'll have enough interest rate exposure or duration so that if things do slow down and we do see a bit of a rally in the market, you'll participate. We've had an inverted yield curve where short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, uh, which happens in the regular market. It's, it's very unusual in the municipal bond market. So how is that affecting uh, your strategy? You are right. It's really the first time that it's ever happened in the muni market where you got that inversion. And I think for a few reasons, one, obviously, because of the deep inversion in the taxable market. But two, I think that uh, more municipal investors pay attention to what's going on in the taxable market and look at tax-adjusted yields and where can I do better. And your curve is inverted. You know, I would say short-term rates all the way out to, say, maybe three or four years, yields are higher than they would be a little bit further out the curve. But so for our strategy, what it's meant is we've been underweight kind of that one to five-year part of the curve in our portfolios, own less of those types of bonds, and own more bonds in that kind of zero to one area, and then more bonds out in, say, the 10 to 15-year part of the curve for kind of a core intermediate strategy. Uh, so the combination gets you to that portfolio interest rate risk that you want, but in general will produce a higher level of income. And then also, just from pure portfolio management and math perspective, again, it gives you a higher total return potential. Now, that being said, what we have been doing here more recently is taking down that underweight to that, say, two to five-year part of the curve, because we do think when the market comes to the realization that the Fed is done, historically what's happened is the yield curve will then reinvert and right. will become steep again. You'll see it happen more quickly in the taxable market, uh, and that part of the curve will then outperform. And so we want to get back to more of what we would call a market weighting. So when that does happen, we will participate. The municipal bond market has some advantages that we normally don't think about as well. The U.S. municipal bond market isn't necessarily subject to global risks that you'd see in other marketplaces. The revenue comes from domestic sources. That would be one. The second one that's unique to the bond market, again, is that the income that you get is exempt from federal taxes. That's very unique. That's not the same case with corporations. The third one, and we think this is huge, is that the ability to file bankruptcy for a municipality is extremely difficult. Whereas on a corporate entity, obviously, we know that. We see it happen. Municipalities aren't subject to leverage buyouts. You don't have LBO risks that exist in our marketplace. And again, if you simply look at the historical default rates in the muni market relative to the corporate market, Dwayne's tired of me saying this, but for a triple B rated municipal bond, historically at least, it's got a similar default rate to a double A or higher rated corporate bond. So those are some of the unique differences in the municipal bond market relative to the corporate or the taxable marketplace. And, and Consuelo, I would just add one other thing that, that is really unique about the municipal market is you know, you're funding typically something you know locally, uh, whether it's your local school district or you're driving on the, the toll road or you're flying out of the airport. And there's a certain comfort level, I think, in people knowing that and that they understand where the, where the revenues come from, whether it's a property tax base or their sales or income tax. 
or the the service fees that might be paid and maybe we all have a bit of a a, a hometown bias let's say or home state bias uh, but I think that's a good thing for investors to understand and be able to touch and feel, if you will, a little bit about the infrastructure that they're really financing. Dwayne McAllister and Lyle Fitterer, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track, And thank you, our listeners, for spending time with us as well. Please follow us on Facebook and our YouTube channel. In the meantime, make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. <laughs>